0: United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed the emir of al-Qaeda.
1: President Biden announced the killing of the top al-Qaeda leader who helped carry out many high-profile terrorist attacks, including 9-11. It's Tuesday, August 2nd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have more on the significance of al-Zawahi's death. Also, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan. The stop on her Asia tour wasn't announced in advance, but Beijing recently said such a visit would have serious consequences for China-U.S. relations. And attorney Cleta Mitchell came under scrutiny after taking part in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now she's hosting election integrity summits that have included RNC officials. It's 4.01. Now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In a display of pro-democracy solidarity, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is resisting China's threats of retaliation by moving ahead with a visit to Taiwan. The Biden administration's urged China not to turn Pelosi's trip into a crisis, but Beijing has warned that a U.S. visit could fuel pro independence sentiment in Taiwan, an island located just 100 miles off the coast of southeastern China. NPR's John Ruwich has more.
3: Pelosi's plane touched down late on Tuesday night, local time. She's the most senior elected U.S. official to visit the island in 25 years. The visit comes at a time of already strained relations between Washington and Beijing, and less than a week after President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping talked on the phone. During that call, she told Biden that, with regard to Taiwan, those who play with fire will eventually get burned. Beijing considers the self-governed island a part of China, and she hopes to unify it with the mainland, by force if necessary. A source familiar with Pelosi's schedule says she's expected to meet members of Taiwan's legislature and President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing.
2: One year after sweeping back into power in Afghanistan, the Taliban are under greater international scrutiny since a U.S. strike made public last night, killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. One of the key planners of the 9-11 terror attacks was targeted on a balcony of a safe house in downtown Kabul. Former CIA Director David Petraeus describes what it indicates about the Taliban.
4: The fact that the Taliban regime is not just tolerating but hosting uh, the the
1: leader of al-Qaeda and the most important al-Qaeda leader other than Osama bin Laden is very, very significant. Moreover, there's a real worry that the Islamic State is actually the more active extremist element in Afghanistan, taking advantage of the situation in the wake of the toppling of the government.
2: Zawahiri so became the head of al-Qaeda after his predecessor, Osama bin Laden, was killed in a U.S. strike in 2011. The Justice Department is suing Idaho over that state's near-total abortion ban, NPR's Kerry Johnson reports it's the first public step from a Biden administration task force designed to protect reproductive freedom.
5: Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Idaho legislation set to take effect August 25th directly conflicts with federal law and the U.S. Constitution. Garland says hospitals that receive Medicare funding must provide stabilizing treatment to pregnant women who suffer medical emergencies. The Justice Department says Idaho's law chills providers' willingness to perform abortions and blocks access to medically necessary health care. DOJ is seeking an injunction against the state law. A task force led by Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta is following developments in other jurisdictions and evaluating possible legal action. Carrie Johnson, NPR
2: News, Washington. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The thermometer is expected to rise again later this week. The National Weather Service has posted a heat advisory for Thursday and Friday. Afternoon temperatures combined with humidity both days are expected to make it feel like it's between 100 and 104 degrees. The Red Sox have reportedly made another move before the 6 p.m. baseball trade deadline. Multiple reports indicate the team has obtained San Diego Padres first baseman Eric Hosmer. There's no confirmation yet from the team and no word as to who the Sox are giving up. Yesterday, the team traded away Christian Vazquez and Jake Diekman. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission plans to meet on Thursday to discuss rules it might impose on sports wagering here in the state. A bill to allow those wagers is awaiting the governor's signature. WBUR's Fausto Menard
6: has more. The proposal would let people bet on most college and professional sporting contests. Phil Sherwood is with the Massachusetts Council on Gambling and Health. His group is neutral on gambling, but he has concerns the bill would let people use apps to wager.
7: There's something to be said when you have to drive an hour to a casino to place a bet or go down the street to buy a lottery ticket. This notion that you can roll over in bed in the middle of the evening and place a bet on your cell phone really creates a concern that people will be betting more frequently.
6: Sherwood is happy several safeguards are in the measure. Among them, a prohibition on using credit cards to gamble and the ability for people to put themselves on a list to exclude them from placing wagers through online platforms. 490.9 wbur I'm Fausto Menard. A proposal
1: to give the City of Boston a representative on the MBTA's Board of Directors has been delayed. Yesterday, the legislature adjourned its two-year formal session without enacting a measure that would give Boston a seat on the board. Mayor Michelle Wu says it would be a major step forward to give the city a direct voice in shaping decisions at the T. The proposal could move forward during informal session between now and January, but legislative rules mean any one lawmaker could scuttle the plan if they object to it. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight, then becoming clear, the low around 71. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot. Sunshine, high of 99 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers on Friday, a high of 92. Right now it's 91 degrees in Boston.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com employment.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
8: And
10: I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Almost 21 years after 9-11, the mastermind of those attacks is dead. A US drone strike killed Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri on Sunday morning in Afghanistan. The intelligence community tracked
11: his location to a safe house right in the middle of Kabul. It's a house in the Sherpur neighborhood of Kabul, which is upscale, a lot of big houses, some of them used to be occupied by U.S.-backed warlords, big blast walls, guard towers. Now, of course, the population has flipped. It's different because the rulers are different. That's Empire
10: Stevensky reporting from Afghanistan, a country now run by the Taliban after the U.S. withdrew its troops last year. And less than one year after that evacuation, the head of al-Qaeda turned up in Afghanistan's capital. So what does that mean for the future of the country? That is a question for Afghan Americans. American diplomat, and former U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, Zalmay Khalilzad, who joins us now. Welcome.
12: Oh, thank you. Good to be with you.
10: Good to have you. So do you believe the Taliban knew with total clarity that Zawahiri was in the heart of Kabul? What do you think?
12: Well, it's very likely that some Taliban knew, whether their leadership as a whole knew it. Uh, I'm not sure, but certainly, uh, it looks like the Akhani network, which is an important element of the Taliban, did know.
10: But you think it's plausible that some elements of the Taliban did not know of his presence there?
12: It is possible. Um, I will not rule it out. And maybe uh, there was a disagreement or anger, uh, even uh, that the uh, some elements were violating the agreement, and that was negotiated between the United States and the Taliban, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that uh, uh, this action uh, by the Aqanis uh, would have put at risk the gains that they had made, and uh, lessons that they had learned uh, that uh, by supporting al-Qaeda the last time cost them a lot.
8: Right.
12: So I would not be surprised if some elements of the Taliban may have helped us, that tipped us off, in terms of the location.
10: Well, can we talk more about this agreement you speak of? This is the Doha agreement. You helped negotiate this U.S.-Taliban deal that allowed the U.S. to withdraw its troops. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today that the Taliban, quote, grossly violated that agreement by allowing Afghan territory to be used by terrorists. If we can just take a step back for a moment, what exactly did the Taliban promise in those discussions?
12: Well, uh, they signed an agreement, a text, uh, in two parts. Part one specifically uh, in, in general terms says that the Taliban would not allow uh, the territory of Afghanistan uh, to be used by groups or individuals, especially Al Qaeda, and that was our uh, demand because mm-hmm. of 9-11, mm-hmm. to, uh, to threaten the security of the United States and our allies. And then the annex uh, as great details of how we would evaluate the Taliban performance or compliance so uh, the secretary of state is quite right uh, to say uh, that allowing the head of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in Kabul uh, was a gross violation of that agreement
10: so in that case in your mind what is the viability of the Doha agreement at this point this deal that you helped broker should the U.S. trust Taliban leadership after this
12: Well, we never uh, trusted the Taliban leadership. Uh, We uh, uh, hold them accountable to the agreement that they made, but at the same time, uh, we wanted to maintain and have maintained the capability uh, to respond uh, to the presence uh, of Al-Qaeda or other terrorists that would threaten the United States. Our commitment, uh, bipartisan commitment, has been that we would not allow Afghanistan to become a safe haven for terrorists who would threaten the United States. And we demonstrated a few days ago that even though we don't have a large number of troops or any troops in Afghanistan, we have the capability and the will uh, to execute and deliver on the commitment that we have made.
10: Well, now, let me ask you this. The Taliban is accusing the U.S. of violating the Doha agreement by initiating this drone strike in the first place. How would you respond to that?
12: Well, that's uh, obviously wrong. Uh, the agreement is clear. It's in black and white, uh, The uh, allowing someone to uh, plot and plan attack, someone who plotted and planned the 9-11 attacks was carried out other attacks on the United States to stay in Kabul and issue statement uh, threatening the security of the United States is a clear beyond any doubt violation of the Doha mm-hmm. Agreement.
10: Okay. In the last minute and a half we minute and a half we have left, I wanna ask you this. And that is, what has the U.S. been doing the last 20 years? Because the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to take out Al Qaeda leadership after 9 11, stayed there for two decades. Less than a year after the U.S. withdraws troops, this happens. What does that say about what the U.S. has managed to achieve the last two decades, you think?
12: Well, we achieved a great deal. Uh, we, uh, we can decimate uh, Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda in Afghanistan was its very center. It's got thousands of followers there. It's plotted and planned there safely and security. Now there are very few al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. We have killed the two major leaders, Osama bin Laden and, and now Zawahiri. And uh, we have uh, the, developed our capability uh, technologically to do what we couldn't do uh, around 9-11, uh, which is to be able to effectively attack from afar, uh, That's still is some work in progress. We need to do better to even develop further that capability. Then we had to go on the ground and to manhunt. We may still have to do some of that. But as we demonstrated yesterday, uh, without a big presence that was very costly to the United States, mm-hmm. we can still do effective counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan.
10: Zalmay Khalilzad, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan and former Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, thank you very much for joining us again.
12: Thank you. Good to be with you.
9: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed earlier today in Taiwan. She is the most senior U.S. government official to visit the island in 25 years. Minutes after her plane touched down, China's military announced it would be holding live-fire military drills around the island later in the week. China opposes stronger U.S.-Taiwan ties because Beijing sees Taiwan as part of China. Could these tensions escalate into a military conflict? NPR's Emily Fang joins us to discuss it. Hi, Emily. Hey, Ari. Why are the stakes so high on this visit?
13: Well, the last speaker of the House to visit Taiwan, that was Newt Gingrich at the time, was in 1997. So Pelosi going to Taiwan now is an extremely bold move that signals stronger U.S.-Taiwan relations. And also, even though this is a visit to Taiwan, this visit's not actually really about the island at all. It's about relations between the U.S. and China. And China has been clear diplomatically and militarily that it opposes this visit.
9: And so how does Beijing view this action by the speaker?
13: Well, China worries this sets a precedent for more American, even global leaders to visit Taiwan when China spent the last 70 years isolating Taiwan diplomatically on the international stage. The U.S. has said this visit is a normal exchange. It does not change U.S.-China policy towards Taiwan, but China sees this differently. It sees Taiwan as part of China, and with this Pelosi visit, China's perceived the U.S. as dangerously close to treating Taiwan like an independent country and under chinese law that could merit a military response
9: but would china really want a military conflict over this
13: no and that's the strange thing this is a sensitive time for china it's dealing with a stumbling economy it's got this big communist party meeting coming up in october China's leader Xi Jinping wants to show that he's running everything smoothly in the country in the lead up to that meeting and having a potential war with Taiwan would mess that up. So Xi Jinping's actually been trying to stabilize U.S.-China relations. It's no coincidence that last week, as Pelosi's visit was drawing nearer possibly, President Biden and Xi Jinping held a phone call. Drew Thompson, uh, he's a former China director at the Defense Department. He argues that despite all the aggressive posturing from China's military, the PLA, high level dialogue between Biden and Xi will matter the most in deciding what happens after Pelosi's
14: visit. These missions that the PLA Air Force conducts or the PLA Navy conducts are ongoing and all the time. So it's really about the high level authoritative messaging particularly between President Biden and Xi Jinping, those are the two most authoritative voices. And and that's really the incredible importance of the phone call between uh, the two leaders uh, a few days ago.
13: But Beijing has to thread this diplomatic needle pretty carefully. It needs to appear ready to take military action if needed, But it's also trying to de-escalate and so if it messes up that balancing act we could accidentally tip the east asian region into war that's what people fear the most
9: very high stakes what kinds of retaliatory measures has china taken so far
13: it's had military drills this entire week right across from the eastern coast of taiwan There were new drills just announced today, minutes after Pelosi landed in Taiwan. Some of the places where those drills are happening are actually kind of within Taiwan's sovereign waters, which is a really big deal. And I would expect tensions to last a few days, if not weeks in a carefully managed back and forth as the U.S., China and Taiwan trying to gauge each other's reactions. Uh, China could still escalate. And now the ball is in China's court. I talked to Yujin Kuo. He is a professor of China studies at National Sun Yat-sen University in Taiwan about this.
12: China's uh, ICP's reaction is that strong, including, for example, like semi-block at the Kaohsiung Harbor for weeks, or plenty of military aircraft uh, and vessels appearing at the medium line of Taiwan Strait. It will force Taiwanese military to react, so the situation will escalate.
13: Again, no one wants to go to war, but no one can show their backing off.
12: And
9: that's NPR's Emily Fang. Thanks a lot.
13: Thanks, Ari.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, an attorney who came under scrutiny for taking part in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election is now hosting election integrity summits that have included RNC officials. That's ahead here on WBUR.
8: WBUR supporters include Boston Landmarks Orchestra's free concert, Beethoven's Ninth, and the world premiere of Dr. Diane White Clayton's Many Mansions this Saturday night at 7 at the DCR Hat Shell. And Gentle Dental, helping you get the dental care you need when you need it. Learn more about teeth whitening for new patients this summer at gentledental.com.
1: In business news, home prices in the Boston area are rising at a slower rate than the national average. A report today from the real estate analysti- analytics c- company Logic, finds home prices in greater Boston rose nearly 11% last month compared to one year ago. Across the nation as a whole, prices were up 18% in that time. Those jumps may not be as large in future months. CoreLogic warns the pace of home price increases appears to be slowing. Wall Street stocks were down today. The Dow finished the day down 1%, or 402 points, at 32,397. NASDAQ was off 0.16%, or 20 points, at 12,349.
8: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu. met
1: In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Then becoming clear, the lows will be around 71 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot sunshine. The highs will be around 99 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers on Friday. The high around 92. The weekend, sunny and 87 degrees on Saturday. Sunny and 92 degrees on Sunday. Right now it's 90 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support
15: for NPR comes from this station. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Avalara, providing cloud-based sales tax solutions for businesses of all sizes with real-time tax rate calculations and automatic return filing. Learn more at Avalara.com
10: slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ahead of this year's midterms, a lawyer who worked on former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election is now trying to mobilize a volunteer army of poll watchers. Her summits have included top officials from the Republican Party alongside at least one activist who's promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory. As NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach reports, hours of leaked audio are shedding light on their efforts.
16: Everybody in the back, take your seats.
9: Back in March of this year, in a hotel just outside Harrisburg,
17: Pennsylvania, people gathered for what was billed as an election integrity summit. It was officially nonpartisan, but the audience seemed clearly pro-Trump.
3: Okay, I got some good news. Donald Trump did not lose Pennsylvania. He did not lose Pennsylvania. Why
17: That's Doug McClinko, a county commissioner from Pennsylvania, who wants to eliminate mail-in voting in the state. He said proudly that he voted against certifying the 2020 election. This event was put on by a longtime conservative election lawyer named Cleta Mitchell.
16: We are taking the lessons we learned in 2020, and we are going forward to make sure they never happen again, ever.
17: If the name Cleta Mitchell sounds familiar, it's probably because of this phone call.
12: So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break.
17: This is from January 2nd, 2021. President Trump pressured Georgia election officials to overturn the state's election results. Trump brought Cleta Mitchell as backup.
16: What I don't understand is why it wouldn't be in everyone's best interest to try to get to the bottom, compare the numbers, to try to be able to get to the truth.
17: According to the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th, Mitchell had also suggested a plan to submit alternate slates of pro-Trump electors. Since then, a prosecutor in Georgia has subpoenaed her as part of a criminal investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the election. While those investigations have been pushing ahead, Mitchell has a new position with a D.C. nonprofit, led in part by Mark Meadows, Trump's last White House chief of staff. It's called the Conservative Partnership Institute.
16: And now I get to work on election integrity every single day.
17: Trump's political action committee donated a million dollars to the Conservative Partnership Institute. And the group appears to keep close ties with Trump campaign staffers like Mike Roman.
14: I was on Trump's campaign. I was on in 16. I was on in 20. Hopefully I'll be on in 24
4: if he hires me.
17: Like Mitchell, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th has subpoenaed Roman. In his case, congressional investigators said he was part of a coordinated strategy to send fake slates of pro-Trump electors to the Electoral College, a strategy that was not discussed at the event. The summit also featured figures closer to the far right.
16: With that, I would like to recognize Tony Shoup, who is CEO of uh, Audit, Pennsylvania.
17: Tony Shoup of Audit the Vote Pennsylvania was introduced as the leader of the state's conservative election integrity coalition. She attended the pro-Trump Stop the Steal rally in Washington on January 6th and was outside the Capitol during the riot. At this event, she led the group in a pledge of allegiance and
5: a Christian prayer. That you will guide the leadership that is in this room to restore integrity, liberty, and freedom to this great country so that you can get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
17: Shoup has said that her path to activism started with a 10-part, three-hour online video that promoted conspiracy theories from 9-11 to QAnon and the bizarre theory called Pizzagate.
2: Pizza Gate is real.
17: In an email, Shoup said that she did not believe everything in the video, but that it was a compelling argument that opened her eyes. I asked her about this startling moment.
2: Worldwide, children are stolen and sold to elite pedophile rings. The murderers then drink the children's blood, and they eat their flesh.
17: Shoup told me she did not know if those specific claims were true, but called it a great question. She suggested that NPR should spend some time digging into it.
18: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Back at the
17: event, the real focus was on the next election. Volunteers heard from Ned Jones, who works with Cleta Mitchell at the Conservative Partnership Institute, and he walked through part of a step-by-step guide to monitoring elections. Jones said one step involved filing Freedom of Information Act requests to local election offices.
4: It does two things. It gets you information that otherwise you wouldn't get, but it puts all of them on notice that you're watching.
17: Jones is active on social media. On January 6th, Jones saw a tweet about the breach of the Capitol building and responded, quote, it's our turn, about time. He's tweeted several times about a coming civil war. At this event, Jones's rhetoric was more muted. Scrutiny
4: and exposure are the tools that we have.
17: Keeping up the pressure on election officials was a theme throughout, though Mitchell herself stressed the importance of remaining polite, not losing your cool. A conservative activist named Christine Brim said it was important for volunteers to concentrate on heavily blue areas, like her home in Fairfax County,
5: Virginia. Our job is not to win. Our job is to lose less badly. And when you're the blue county that can ruin a statewide vote, that really focuses what you're doing.
17: Now, alongside these activists at the event and drawing on this volunteer energy, there were also two officials with the Republican National Committee, including the party's national director for, quote, election integrity. They praised Mitchell as the best election law expert out here and emphasized that these volunteer poll watchers and election workers would help provide intelligence to the party war room by identifying issues that the party could include in legal challenges. Here's Andrea Raffle, the RNC's Director of Election Integrity for Pennsylvania.
5: Um, If we can even get one Republican in every precinct, that means we have eyes in every precinct automatically. And you're there doing those official duties, making sure that everything is running smoothly in that precinct. This
17: event in Pennsylvania is one of several across the country, including Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, Mitchell has said they're building an army of patriots to monitor elections.
16: And with that, thank you, and God bless you, and God bless America.
17: It's not concerning, or even really unusual, for political groups to mobilize volunteers to help watch the polls or ask questions of election officials. That's democracy. But experts say it is concerning when people behind the mobilization believe conspiracy theories about the last election. Brendan Fisher is the deputy executive director of a group called Documented, which investigates the influence of corporations and wealthy people in politics. They obtained the tape of this event and shared it with NPR.
18: The concern is that the conspiracy theorists who see fraud around every corner are going to disrupt voting and the administration
19: of elections.
17: Some longtime Republicans, like David Hoppe, have also been raising the alarm about the spread of the big lie. Hoppy is a former chief of staff for House Speaker Paul Ryan and part of a group of conservatives behind a report called Lost, Not Stolen, which debunks false election fraud claims.
20: If you start saying, gee, I was cheated just because you don't like to lose, that undermines the system. It really does go to the heart of a representative
18: democracy.
17: The Conservative Partnership Institute did not respond to NPR's requests for comment. A spokesperson for the RNC said that the party works with other groups who have an interest in promoting election integrity, but they are not part of any formal coalition and are, quote, independent of outside groups. Tom Dreisbach, NPR
16: News.
8: This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. Mathworks.com/MOS comcast business whether your business is starting or growing comcast business is working to build a network to keep customers connected comcast business powering possibilities and the new bedford whaling museum where you can immerse yourself in the art and culture of the south coast located off exit 26 on i-195 plan your visit today across north america every year migratory monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles
7: Imagine the fact that these butterflies migrate to Mexico. How does it something that weighs about half a gram manage to do what you can't do?
15: The monarch butterfly is now
17: endangered, but they can be saved. Find out how on Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
21: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. After a major setback, the Senate is expected to vote shortly on legislation that would provide health care and benefits to military veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. NPR's Windsor Johnston has the story.
13: Veterans have been camped out on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building, demanding that Congress pass the legislation. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer slammed the Republican no votes, calling the bill long overdue for service members.
21: Our veterans have already given their all to defend our nation from threats abroad. They shouldn't have to fight a second war here at home just to get the health care benefits they rightfully deserve.
13: The legislation would allow veterans with certain illnesses to receive treatment and disability payments without having to prove their conditions came from their service. Some Republicans have dismissed the bill, calling it a budgeting gimmick. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
21: The Justice Department is suing Idaho over the state's near-total abortion ban set to take effect later this month. This is the first public step from the Biden administration task force designed to protect reproductive freedom. Attorney General Merrick Garland says hospitals that receive Medicare funding must provide stabilizing treatment to pregnant women who suffer medical emergencies.
20: In some circumstances, the medical treatment necessary to stabilize the patient's condition is abortion. This may be the case, for example, when a woman is undergoing a miscarriage that threatens septic infection or hemorrhage or is suffering from severe preeclampsia.
21: The Justice Department says Idaho's law chills providers' willingness to perform abortions and blocks access to medically necessary health care. DOJ is seeking an injunction against the state law set to take effect on August 25th. You're listening to NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The derailment of construction equipment is to blame for disruptions to some red line service this morning. The MBTA says the incident at 1.30 a.m. near Quincy Center caused some damage to the third rail, which had to be repaired. There were no injuries. Shuttle buses were used just before 6.30 to carry passengers between JFK UMass and Braintree stops. The T is performing track and maintenance work in the area, as ordered by the Federal Transit Administration. It's the latest in a series of service disruptions and safety problems in the last year that have included collisions, derailments, and a fire on an Orange Line train last month. The moon is one reason why Boston had flu- fewer than predicted days of high tide uh, high tide flooding last year. That's according to a report today from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA had predicted 11 to 18 days of high tide flooding. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports the city saw just seven.
5: Boston got off easy partly because of the natural cycle of the moon. The high tides just weren't as high. But don't expect that to continue. NOAA oceanographer William Sweet says as the moon continues on its course and sea levels rise with the changing climate, flood days will increase.
6: In most U.S. coastal locations, the number of high tide flooding days per year is growing. It's accelerating, in fact, along most East and Gulf coastlines. And the rate of flooding is more than twice than it was about 20 years ago.
5: NOAA predicts up to 18 days of high tide flooding for Boston next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
1: Several beaches on Nantucket were closed to swimming today because of confirmed shark sightings this morning. The Nantucket Harbor Master tweets that six swimming areas were closed for at least part of the day, among them Ladies, Surfside, and Cisco beaches. The NFL has suspended Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross and fined him $1.5 million for tampering with Tom Brady while Brady was still with the Patriots during the 2019 season. The league says the Dolphins violated league policy by trying to recruit Brady to play for them while he was still under contract in New England. The league says Miami also approached him as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer to discuss roles as a Dolphin player or owner. The Dolphins will forfeit a first-round draft pick in 2023 and a third-round pick in 2024. Ross is suspended through October 17th. Sports the Red Sox take on the Astros again tonight down in Houston. The game time is 8:10. The forecast mostly cloudy, chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Then becoming clear, the lows will be around 71 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot. Sunshine with a high of 99 degrees. Right now it's 91 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It's primary day in Kansas. And in addition to selecting nominees for federal, state, and local office, Kansans will be voting on one issue getting a lot of attention right now, an amendment that could set the stage for vastly tighter abortion laws. Now, even in a conservative state, that vote is looking pretty close. And here to talk more about it is NPR political correspondent Danielle Kirk. Hey, Danielle. Hey there. All right. So what exactly would this amendment do?
22: Sure. So this amendment hinges around a 2019 state Supreme Court decision. And that decision found that the state constitution protects the right to an abortion. So this amendment would just undo that. It would change the constitution to say explicitly that no, it does not protect the right to an abortion. So. The amendment itself wouldn't change policy, but especially post-Roe, it would open the door to any number of new restrictions on abortion.
10: OK, let me make sure I understand this. So this wouldn't be like a new law. It's an amendment no. that would allow for a possible new law. So I, I'm just curious, like, how are the two sides messaging on something that's not quite clear cut here?
22: Well, let's let's start with the no side. That is the people who are who support abortion rights. Mm-hmm. They're arguing that the amendment is going to lead to a ban on abortion. And one slogan you see on a lot of yard signs here, it says stop the ban. I talk to voters about this. I talked to Alma Eisenberg and her two adult daughters, Amber and Allie, outside of a polling place and I ask them, Do you fear a ban?
5: Yes. Yes. Because
22: yes. yes. they'll make it a ban.
5: Yeah. Right? Yeah, the, it just gives okay, them permission okay. to ban it and to make up what other crazy things that they believe and whatever laws that they can just invent.
23: Mm
22: -hmm. Now, of course, we don't know what lawmakers would do if this passes, but I've spoken with professors and analysts who have all told me that very restrictive abortion laws would be likely.
10: Okay, well, what about people on the yes side, like people who oppose abortion rights, who want this amendment to pass? What are they arguing here?
22: On this side, the goal is entirely to try to make the case that the amendment is not extreme. And that is reflected even in the amendment language itself. It says that lawmakers may pass laws, quote, that account for the circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. Now what you might notice is that that doesn't say they will pass laws with those exceptions, just that they may. And the vote no side has criticized this as misleading. Mm -hmm. One more thing I should add is that another main message from this side is that this is purely about democratic representation to allow lawmakers to reflect what people want in the law. However, major organizations pushing the amendment have been very hesitant to say what they want lawmakers to pass. I was out yesterday with Titus Folks. he's a grassroots political coordinator for Students for Life. And we were talking about how there are a lot of very strongly anti-abortion rights people in Kansas. So I asked him, why not lead with a message of purely this amendment would just cut way back on abortion?
24: I think the,
18: the messaging they chose was to focus on people in the middle and to say, hey, you like these reasonable restrictions on late-term abortion, which are overwhelmingly popular. So mm-hmm. that's what they focused on. I, th- I think that's, that's they're just trying to build the majority, basically.
10: Huh. So focusing on the people in the middle, what's your sense then of how that messaging is working?
22: Well, if you just look at polling, there aren't a lot of great polls on this, but one from Kansas Pollster Coefficient recently found it to be a tight race with a slight lead toward the yes side. And, you know, Kansas is a pretty red state. So, and the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe really energized the pro-abortion rights side. But, The middle is where you hear people thinking hard about what they support. And one person is Republican Dana Corcoran, who had already voted no on the amendment.
15: I generally am very pro-life, but I also have a problem with the government getting in the middle of people's personal
10: decisions.
22: So if you talk to the vote no side, they believe those people, the moderates, Mm -hmm. that they will break for them.
10: That is NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben. Thank you, Danielle. Yes,
22: thank you.
9: Georgia is known as the peach state. The fruit is plastered everywhere, from the state's license plates to its I Voted stickers. But rising temperatures from climate change could threaten Georgia's most iconic crop. As WABE's Sam Greenglass reports, Georgia farmers are learning to adapt. Down a dirt road lined with peach
18: and pecan trees, Al Pearson hops out of his truck and opens the door for his dog, Essie. (laughs)
11: Essie, whoa. Essie, everything's good.
18: He surveys a stretch of orchard his great-grandfather first planted some 140 years ago. It's just home. There's a magnetism about it. Pearson's family has grown peaches in Georgia for five generations. Today, the trees are still harvested by hand. It's still a lot of stress and gamble, and visitors still love Pearson's peach ice cream.
11: You are good? You like like that ice cream? (laughs) Yes. You're not gonna let it drip on anything, are you?
18: Some things have changed, though. In the packing house, an optical sorter snaps images of every peach rolling down the conveyor belt, directing them to just the right packaging and customer. But now, Georgia peach farmers may face a new disruption, climate change. Pearson says avoiding the conversation is impossible. I'm not a climatologist, but I am a farmer and the climate does affect us. It's not something that I can see every day. Still, scientists warn that growers should expect warmer winters with fewer chill hours. That's the number of hours where the temperature drops below 45 degrees. Peaches and some other fruit trees need a minimum number of them to fruit, says Pam Knox, an agricultural climatologist at the University of Georgia. We
15: know for sure winters are getting warmer, and there's no other explanation that there can be other than human-caused global warming.
18: Knox says climate data show chill hours have already been trending downward in Georgia. Though some farmers planning for the future may swap crops.
15: Peaches are not going to go away in Georgia. It's not like Georgia's someday going to become the no peach
23: state.
18: That's because horticulturists are breeding new varieties that require fewer chill hours.
23: You want to follow me and we can go to the orchard? Yeah, yeah. Horticulturist
18: Dario Chavez is testing new peach varieties at a University of Georgia experimental station. He believes new varieties can help sustain Georgia's peach growing tradition. While some might be skeptical about climate change affecting their crops, Chavez says many growers he talks to are already adapting.
23: 30, 40 years ago, you used to grow 1,000 chill-hour cultivars. I say, do you grow those now? And they probably
18: say no. Producing a new variety isn't easy. A new breed may require fewer chill hours, but if it blooms too early, it's vulnerable to late frost. There are other considerations, too, like disease, humidity, or drought. It can be a decade-long investment.
0: Every variety is like a child. It takes years to figure them out. <laughs>
18: At Pearson Farm, Al Pearson's son, Lauden, has already been trying new varieties. He's anticipating many changes the farm may have to adapt to in the future, including the climate. Today, two peach varieties grown by Pearson's great-great-grandfather are still in production, the Bell of Georgia and the Alberta. Climatologist Pam Knox estimates if trends persist, those varieties likely won't be tenable here by mid-century. Laudan Pearson is undaunted.
21: We got to keep changing as the environment, as
0: everything else changes.
18: It's a challenge Pearson is ready to take on. He says they don't have a choice. For NPR News, I'm Sam Gringlass in Fort Valley, Georgia.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from
25: NPR News. When 30-year-old Paulina Katabach saw her first lady on the cover of Vogue last week, she was filled with pride. I found it very important to spread the word about the war in Ukraine. We're still standing strong, we're tired, but we're still doing whatever we can. Shot in Kyiv last month by photographer Annie Leibovitz, the series of photos, some including President Volodymyr Zelensky, and the accompanying interview, paint Olena Zelenska as a woman stepping up to the great challenge of her many roles in this war a first lady, a female role model, and increasingly, a diplomat. So Kadabach was taken aback when the criticism started pouring in, particularly those about Zelenska's appearance, her too glamorous hair, the bags under her eyes, and her her posture. Sit like a girl. It's inappropriate for the first lady. It's inappropriate for the women to sit like this. Leaning in, elbows on her knees, legs not sipped together. Zelenska has also been accused by some of her fellow Ukrainians of stealing the spotlight from actual women working on the front lines and promulgating a cult of personality around President Zelensky in the West. Meanwhile, overseas, the photoshoot has also been criticized simultaneously as war propaganda and making light of the conflict. A critical tweet by Houston-based podcaster Jalisa Danielle went viral. She says Vogue just didn't seem like the right vehicle for the message Zelenska may have- have. been trying to send.
26: To look at that and see on one hand, people are saying this is very serious, a lot of crazy conflicts going on. And then to see like somebody has time to, you know, do a high fashion photo shoot, although it wasn't like, you know, high fashion clothes and stuff like that, but that's what it's associated with.
25: These criticisms have prompted Zelenska to defend the photo shoot. Here she is on the BBC last week speaking through a translator.
27: I will repeat myself again that I'm using every opportunity to speak about Ukraine. That was a massive opportunity because millions of people read Vogue.
25: Enter hashtag Sit Like a Girl. Now being used by women all over the world in recreating Zelenska's now iconic front page photo. Soldiers, police, women, activists, artists, women both outside and inside Ukraine. I think it's amazing,
28: and I think it shows like the power that civil society has in Ukraine, which is so nice to see in juxtaposition to, you know, Russia.
25: Valeria Volshevska is a Ukrainian activist who works for Amnesty International in London. She says it's really nice to see Ukrainian women in particular stand up for themselves and challenge stereotypes at such a crucial time.
28: And it's nice to see that, like, you know, sometimes you don't even need words to stand up for something. And I think this is, like, such a great example of that, right? Like, when you see that, you 100% know what they're talking about, which is the fact that, like, it's OK
25: for a woman to sit however the hell she wants to. Polina Karabach recreated First Lady Zelenska's photo in her Kiev apartment and posted it onto Facebook. Her portrait was taken by her husband, Yuri. I think that we should stop paying attention to this and, and start focusing on what's important. Like the Russian invasion, now in its sixth month. Not how women are sitting. Ashley Westerman, NPR News Livy.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 92 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with writer and audiobook narrator Julia Whalen about what it was like bringing her own profession to the pages of her new novel. Thank you for listening. That's just ahead here on WBUR.
11: Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration.
1: Many of my colleagues are working
11: in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into morning edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
1: In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight, then becoming clear, the lows will be around 71 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot sunshine with a high of around 99 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers on Friday, the high in 92. Sunny and 87 degrees on Saturday. Again, right now, it's 92 degrees in Boston. Terry Stone, Managing Partner of the Americas for Oliver Wyman, a WBUR underwriter.
5: WBUR's programming is smart, creative, informative, and thought-provoking, just like our clients and employees who look to WBUR to help them understand the world. We are very proud to support WBUR.
29: To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to wbur.org slash sponsorship.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
23: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. All right, listen closely to this next voice. If you are a fan of audiobooks, it may sound
26: familiar. The girl wakes up in someone else's bed. I can certainly consult for you while reading books and writing about them. Was Donald Trump's de facto headquarters for much of his time? Doing it is meaningless, especially in literature from me. A novel written and performed by Julia Whelan.
23: Julia Whalen. She is all those voices you just heard. She is one of the most prolific, most in-demand narrators in the audiobook business. She is also a novelist, now out with her second book titled Thank You for Listening. It is the very funny tale of Swanee Chester, who is an audiobook narrator. And yes, if you want to listen rather than read off the page, guess who narrates it? Julia Whalen. thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you for having me is this the most meta thing ever? How are you keeping fact from fiction straight at this point?
26: I don't know. At this point, nothing makes sense to me. Um, (laughs) I I knew obviously when I was writing it that I was writing a very meta novel, but when I got into the booth to actually record the book, it just hit different and I understood that I had written something that was possibly so meta it just spins off its axis. (laughs) All right.
23: Well, I want to talk a little bit about the book and then how you do it. Um, Your main character, Swanee Chester, she is not you. She is fictional. Introduce us to her.
26: Swanee Chester is a former on-camera actress who suffered a pretty tragic event, and it ended her on-camera career. And she has found herself doing audiobook narration. And while she loves it, it's hard for her to accept that life has just not gone according to her plan and what she wanted to be doing.
23: Okay. So she's at a crossroads in her career. She gets a request out of the blue to narrate a romance. And she's not happy about this because she doesn't really like romance, the whole genre. But meanwhile, she is paired to read with a male audiobook narrator who turns out to be pretty dreamy. Did you write a novel that pokes fun at romance,
26: but is itself a romance? Yes, that was sort of the intention. I love romance. I'm a romance reader. I love recording it. But I understand the typical issues that people take with it. So I wanted to write a book that was firmly rooted in romance while also saying, if you found yourself living in a romance novel, would you actually trust it <laughs> or would you sabotage yourself? I mean, it's it's one thing
23: to narrate a nonfiction book where it's one voice telling you a story. Quite another to narrate fiction where you are th- flipping between all kinds of voices and different accents to try to bring the dialogue to life. I want you to give us a little bit of a taste, and this will not, we don't need any plot spoilers here. This is page one, very first page.
26: (laughs) Page one, absolutely. Things were heating up with no possibility of cooling down. Not this time. She could see it in his eyes. His pupils were throbbing. The gentleman of the last three weeks was gone. He was now anything but gentle he was all man their eyes were locked and loaded he raised his hand and flattened it against her white silk blouse her heartbeat grabbed at it he kissed her hotly wetly then took hold of her straddled hips and lifted her off him she gave a startled cry as he flipped her something to drink onto her back on his expensive crepe-de-chine couch ma'am we shouldn't be doing this he growled you're my intern and grandfather insists I marry Caroline. Something to drink? The long suffering tone broke through, and Swanee Chester, startled window seat occupant, whipped off her noise canceling headphones as if they were on fire. What? Sorry, what? You have no idea how hard I was trying not to groan,
23: moan, laugh, and scream. If you did that. <laughs> How do you prepare? If, if I mean, I just asked you to do that and you did it like a pro as you would, but normally what do you have to do to kind of get in the zone?
26: I have a, do a very thorough prep read to begin. And in that prep read, I'm keeping track of all of the characters who open their mouths and any vocal traits that the author gives them, any accents, any description, any biographical details that I think are important. And so by the time I'm actually stepping into the booth to record, I kind of have a game plan and I'm ready to get going.
23: Just listening to you, your reading voice, your narrating
26: voice is a little different from your voice just talking to me. Is that deliberate? People have definitely pointed that out to the extent that when I'm in a car, for instance, with a group of friends on a road trip and we're listening to maybe an article I've recorded, it sometimes takes them 10 minutes to say, wait, is this you? (laughs) Really. Um, Yes, but I think it's, you know, to me it feels like there's a narrator voice that I feel is the least intrusive for the listener that I've developed over the years that is a consistency that they expect. I'm curious, do you find that your voice is different when you're conversational versus when you're on air? People recognize my voice when I'm out and about, like checking in for a flight at the airport or at the coffee shop
23: or something. Does that happen to you?
26: No, but it's happened to a couple of narrators that I know.
23: I mean, it's interesting. We... For radio, are trained to try to sound just the same as our conversational voice, um, yeah. which is crazy that that would require training, but it does because the instinct, for me at least, when you get behind a mic, is not to sound like your normal self, but to assume some sort of very authoritative voice of God telling you the headlines right. um, instead of this just our news. To a everyone, how do you think about who you're reading for? Who's listening?
26: one of the things that for me is important is i am always trying to represent the voice of the book first and foremost not my voice so that's what i mean by i have a consistent performance voice that i think people are familiar with and therefore they don't have to get into a new voice um when they settle into a new story
23: wow I can't help myself. Can I ask you to read one more scene? I just, I just want to hear a little bit more of this in the voices. I picked out one more, Swanee sitting in a bar in Vegas and a guy wanders over and tries to pick her up.
26: Which is a scene that always goes notoriously well, as we all know. <laughs> she looked up, a rather striking man stared down at her, hands on his hips. Uh, hi, you can't be leaving. We just met. Now that was a smile. It rendered the cheesy line charming. Oh, God. Swan wasn't ready for this. This lanky-limbed, broad-shouldered, tanned wrinkles at the corners of his eyes, eight o'clock-shadowed, tall, iced, umbrella cocktail of a man. She made a point of looking back at the bill, but he said, "'May I?' And before she could answer, he sat down on the opposite end of the long Chesterfield, leaving a respectful distance between them. "'Cheers,' he said. And for a stupid moment, she thought he was toasting her. But when she looked up at him, he was gazing out into the room. It's crowded, yeah? And she realized he hadn't been toasting her. He was British. Cheers as in, thanks. Cheers as in, I don't need your permission, but I'm a gentleman, so I asked anyway. Cheers as in, buckle up toots
23: (laughs) and indeed we do well if that wasn't enough to wet people's appetites (laughs) for seeing where this um romance goes i don't know it would be thank you thank you so much for having me this was a delight that is julia whalen reading to us from her new novel it's titled thank you for listening and i want to say thank you for joining us and for writing this and
26: reading it absolutely it was my pleasure all of it
9: And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from your part-time controller, your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. <laughs>
7: If you think of bin Laden as kind of the front man, who's the glitzy, glamorous guy who brought prestige and money to al-Qaeda, Zwahri was really the man who was the ideologue, who was the chief operating officer, if you will. And of this pair, he was really the more hardline of the two.
10: I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight
20: at 8
17: on WBUR.
20: I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
29: People left with absolutely nothing. Uh, homes that we don't know where they are just entirely
1: gone. The floods in eastern Kentucky have claimed more than three dozen lives and the scope of the devastation is becoming clearer. It's Tuesday, August 2nd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, we'll hear from the FEMA official overseeing the federal disaster response. Also, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been a sharp critic of China's government for decades. Her visit to Taiwan is being received by Beijing as a provocation. And under a ruling by the Michigan Court of Appeals, local prosecutors in Michigan may soon be allowed to file felony charges against abortion providers. Multiple challenges are already underway. The Wall Street stock prices were off again today. We're going to have some more hot weather ahead this week. It's 5.01 now. This News.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Voters in five states are heading to the polls today. As NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports, there could be consequences for how elections are run in key states across the country.
6: Lots of Republicans have sought former President Trump's endorsement. To get it, though, they've had to share in his lie about the 2020 presidential election. In Arizona, Trump's candidates for governor, Senate, and even Secretary of State are all peddling Trump's lies. In the Secretary of State's race, Mark Fincher who has Trump's backing would be the sixth election denier to win a GOP nomination for that office across the country. Four would be in swing states. For Trump, Arizona is a key stepping stone to paving a path back to the White House should he decide to run in 2024. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington.
4: The federal judge is denying an attempt by members of the Oath Keepers extremist group to postpone their criminal trial on charges of seditious conspiracy. The defendants are charged in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
7: The case against the members of the Oath Keepers, including the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, is one of the highest-profile prosecutions to emerge from the federal investigation into the Capitol riot. The defendants are charged with several offenses, the most serious of which is seditious conspiracy for allegedly plotting to use force to prevent Congress from certifying Joe Biden's election win. Some of the defendants are scheduled to go to trial at the end of September they were seeking a delay for several reasons, including the potential prejudicial effect from the House hearings on the events of January 6th. Ultimately, Judge Ahmed Mehta denied the motion and ordered the trial to go forward as planned. Ryan Lucas and Pierre News, Washington.
4: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has arrived in Taiwan, becoming the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit the country in 25 years. Visit by Pelosi to the self-ruled island claimed by China setting off a firestorm of controversy, with China quickly announcing it was conducting military maneuvers in the region in response to the visit, which it staunchly opposed. Pelosi arrived aboard a U.S. Air Force passenger jet today. Firefighters battling the largest wildfire in California are taking advantage of cooler wet weather and high humidity. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports the McKinney Fire has now claimed four lives since it ignited several days ago.
3: The McKinney Fire is burning in extremely dry forests near the California-Oregon state line. Cooler and wet weather has allowed crews to begin digging containment lines with the hopes of keeping the fire away from the town of Wairica, California. Fire behavior analyst Dennis Burns says rain has slowed the spread of the fire.
1: We're not completely sure on how much growth there was, but it wasn't very much, which has given our crews some really good opportunities to get after the fire.
3: Northern California's latest weather forecast is a mixed bag. Burns says there's a potential that thunderstorms could bring up to an inch of rain, but also lightning could ignite even more fires. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Los Angeles. You're listening to NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Drought conditions are taking their toll on Boston's biggest waterway. A gauge in Dover finds the Charles River water level has fallen more than a half a foot since mid-June. Lisa Kumpf of the Charles River Watershed Association says shallow water tends to slow down and warm up.
14: When the temperature increases in The water, um, it cannot hold as much dissolved oxygen in it, which is detrimental for wildlife living in the river that depends on that oxygen.
1: Kumpf says the stagnant water also makes the Charles more vulnerable to algae blooms. Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson is facing a congressional subpoena. The House Oversight Panel is looking, uh, seeking information on the manufacture, marketing, and sale of AR-15-style guns. It is probing a series of mass shootings and gun violence in the U.S. The subpoena comes after Smith & Wesson's CEO reversed course and canceled his planned testimony before the panel last month. Framingham-based TJX will pay a $13 million penalty for federal consumer safety violations. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says the parent company of TJ Maxx and Marshalls knowingly sold products that were the subject of 21 different recalls over the course of five years. Many of the products included baby sleepers that were recalled because of a risk of suffocation. As a result of today's settlement, the company will maintain a recall compliance program. A new lawsuit alleges a priest who served in Lynn sexually assaulted a boy when he was 12. The anonymous plaintiff claims Paul Fitzpatrick Russell abused him more than 30 years ago. Russell denies the allegations that stem back to his time working at the Sacred Heart Parish. He's now an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese of Detroit. The lawsuit also names the Archdiocese of Boston. The Archdiocese says it's withholding comment on the claims because of a pending legal matter. A New Hampshire man is facing a citation after security teams found a loaded firearm in his carry-on luggage at Logan Airport. Transportation Security Administration officers uncovered the handgun with a round in the chamber in the backpack yesterday at a screening checkpoint. Massachusetts State Police confiscated the gun. Officials have not released the man's name. Screeners have detected 15 handguns at Logan so far this year. 13 of those were loaded sports. The Red Sox take on the Astros tonight in Houston. The forecast, mostly cloudy, chances showers of thunderstorms tonight then clear. The lows will be around 71 degrees.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Hundreds of people are still unaccounted for in eastern Kentucky. The death toll of 37 is expected to rise after some of the worst floods in the region's history. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir spoke at a news conference this morning.
29: It is absolutely devastating out there. Uh, it's going to take years to rebuild. People left with absolutely nothing. Uh, Homes that we don't know where they are, just entirely gone. And we continue to find bodies of our brothers and sisters that we have lost.
9: Brett Howard at FEMA is overseeing federal recovery operations in the area, and he joins us now from Kentucky. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Hey, good afternoon. You're welcome.
9: Uh, Begin by just telling us what you're seeing on the ground as you move around there.
0: I think Governor Bashir put it uh, very well, uh, it's devastation, houses are gone um, and it is it's pretty tremendous at the level of impact these, this flood had on the citizens of, of eastern Kentucky.
9: Some of the citizens have told us they wish FEMA had responded more aggressively sooner. Yesterday we spoke to the owner of Kentucky Mist Distillery in Whitesburg, Colin Fultz, here's what he said.
3: People was out cleaning up their roads with their own personal equipment and stuff, trying so we can get out to get to where we need And Then last night, it flooded again on top of what we already had. So some of it had been cleaned up and then it washed right back out again yesterday.
9: So Brett Howard, what do you say to people who are frustrated with the pace and the scale of the federal response to these floods?
0: The, the federal response uh, began early with, uh, as we, became aware of the governor's request and the Kentucky Emergency Management Agency standing up their Emergency Operations Center. We, FEMA immediately deployed a liaison officer to begin working with a, the Commonwealth. On, um, and on Friday, uh, the president declared a major declaration and we became heavily involved in it Friday and have, to this point, have sent four, five. excuse me, five urban search and rescue teams uh, to the area to help with the with the swift water rescue, to provide uh, technical expertise uh, to the local responders to uh, respond to and help with the uh, the search and the rescue.
9: And We've so are you still primarily t- in search and rescue mode or is it rebuilding mode, cleanup? Like w- what is the operation at this point?
0: The operation at this point is still uh, a little bit of search and rescue and recovery. We are making. Uh, we are transitioning from search and rescue. Now uh, we're not getting any more reports of stranded uh, individuals, and we are we're trying to are transitioning into um, recovery. We brought in 18 truckloads of water, so we're making we're trying to get to people, make sure they have, they're safe, sanitary, secure. We have shelters open. We have mobile registration centers available for uh, to assist survivors and registering for FEMA assistance. Yeah, I was going to ask about
9: that because so many people have lost internet and phone access, it must be hard for them to actually sign up and register their needs.
0: Absolutely. We we recognize that. We have uh, deployed survivor survivor assistance teams uh, that are working at the shelters and are going to be going out into the community, and these teams will register. the survivors, they'll have the capabilities right there to help the survivors register and register for them. uh, Even if they don't have internet or a phone capability, we can go and meet them where they are and get them registered.
9: Now the heat index tomorrow is supposed to get up above 100 degrees. And so when thousands of households are without power, is that creating added challenges for the federal response?
0: It does create added challenges, but we seem to be meeting that very well. We're working with the Commonwealth. They've established cooling stations uh, and in in several of the the hardest hit areas, we are supporting those so that individuals that do not have power can come to the cooling station. We're making sure that we have stepped up uh, efforts to get more water into these areas and get the water systems back online.
9: This area is prone to flooding, but old-timers say they have never seen anything this bad. They say houses that have stood for centuries were washed away by these floods. What's it gonna to take to come back from this?
0: I think the governor said it best, it's gonna take years. Uh, we, the federal government, the FEMA is here. We've been here since the tornadoes in, in Western Kentucky last year. I've been on the ground since, uh, since March it's going to take some time to rebuild. This, it, what Mother Nature can do in minutes will take mankind years to rebuild. It's going to be, it's going to take some time. We're here through the, the process. We're going to be here to the end with uh, the governor, with the Commonwealth to, to make sure this happens, but it's going to take some time to get it rebuilt.
9: That is Brett Howard who is coordinating FEMA's response to the floods in Eastern Kentucky. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.
10: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is visiting Taiwan during a tour of Asian nations in spite of warnings from Beijing at a time of high tensions between the U.S. and China. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, Pelosi is no stranger to defying and criticizing the Chinese government.
27: Eighteen days after Chinese troops massacred protesters calling for democratic reform in Tiananmen Square in 1989, a group of U.S. lawmakers condemned the violence. Nancy Pelosi of California was one of them.
2: The human rights of the people in China are not an internal matter, that they're of concern to people all over the world and especially uh, to the members of Congress
27: here. Two years later, Pelosi observed the anniversary of the massacre at a rally in front of the U.S. Capitol. She held up a watch she said was smuggled out of China that had been a gift from the Chinese Communist Party to the soldiers who participated in the crushing of the protests.
22: What this watch says is that time is running out for the regressive
18: regime in China.
27: Months later, she visited Tiananmen Square as part of a small congressional delegation. She unfurled a banner that read, quote, to those who died for democracy in China. The move triggered a brief confrontation with police, which CBS captured.
20: As they laid three white flowers at the foot of the Monument to Martyrs, Beijing police moved in. They ordered the Congress members to stop the ceremony.
27: And so began a congressional tenure marked by Pelosi's tough stance on China and strong advocacy for human rights, which at times has put her at odds with leaders of both parties in the U.S. Over the years, she's opposed China's bid to host the Olympics, has met with Hong Kong pro-democracy protesters, and has been active in creating paths for Chinese political prisoners to come to the U.S. Last year, she oversaw the House approval of legislation imposing economic sanctions on China for goods from the forced labor of Muslim Uyghurs. She didn't mince words about where she stands.
2: I take second place to no one in the Congress in my criticism of China's human rights record.
27: Now she's in Taiwan, an island democracy that governs itself, but that China claims as its territory. The Chinese government views American support for Taiwan as interfering in its own sovereignty. In July, Pelosi said it's important to show support for Taiwan.
8: None of us has ever said
27: we're for independence when it comes to Taiwan. That's up to Taiwan to decide. 31 years after Pelosi defended, fied Beijing and Tiananmen Square, she does so again, this time as Speaker of the House. She's the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. The Chinese government swiftly condemned her visit. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington.
9: In Michigan, a legal drama is surrounding the question of whether abortion remains legal in the state. A central question is whether an abortion ban adopted in 1931 is enforceable. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta reports.
20: The old law targets abortion providers who could face felony charges except to save the life of a pregnant woman. It's considered one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. And Kaylee Hansen, a spokeswoman for Governor Gretchen Whitmer, says this issue needs to be settled.
26: Women are going through a serious lack of clarity Doctors, healthcare providers are going through a lack of clarity as well, as long as there is any uncertainty about this 1931
28: abortion ban that doesn't even include exceptions for rape and incest.
20: First, a little backstory. Following the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision in June, it was expected the 1931 Michigan law would be reactivated, but a state court judge blocked that while a challenge was litigated. That case was dismissed this week on a jurisdictional issue, and that set off a -a tilt-a-whirl of legal actions. There are 13 local prosecutors with abortion clinics in their counties. Some prosecutors say they're ready to file charges. Others say they won't. David Coleman is a prominent Michigan attorney who argues anti-abortion cases. He says local prosecutors should get to decide.
0: There is a valid law that's on the books. County prosecutors around
7: the state If a case is brought to them and a doctor performs an abortion and it's not to save the life of the mother, then they could be prosecuted for that.
20: A judge here stepped in yesterday at the behest of Governor Whitmer and issued a temporary restraining order that means abortions are still legal in those 13 counties.
14: And therefore, um, services and the provision of abortion is still legal in Michigan.
20: That's Deborah LaBelle, a lawyer with Planned Parenthood of Michigan, who calls the restraining order welcome, though temporary, relief. There are still other legal actions pending, too. Top among them is Governor Whitmer's request that the Michigan Supreme Court take up the case and rule that abortion rights are protected under the state constitution's privacy clause. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluden.
10: As we just heard, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is throwing the ongoing military tension between Taiwan and China back into the headlines. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a look at the recent history of that tension and what's different in 2022. If you aren't by the radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 91 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, could Ukraine's army retake the strategic southern city of Kherson? Officers and soldiers near the front lines say the counteroffensive is already underway. In business news, the largest bank in the U.S. plans to expand here in Massachusetts. Chase Bank said today it will more than double its footprint in the state by 2025. Right now it has about three dozen branches here. The expansion plan calls for about 90, including its first-ever branches on Cape Cod and in Worcester wall street today stocks were down the dow finished the day down 1% or 402 points at 32397 nasdaq was off 0.16% 20 points at 12349 the s&p 500 down half a percent or 27 points to close at 4091
8: WBUR supporters include Boston Landmarks Orchestra's free concert, Beethoven's Ninth, and the world premiere of Dr. Diane White Clayton's Many Mansions, this Saturday night at 7 at the DCR Shell, and Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek citysidesubaru.com.
1: In the forecast, mostly cloudy with the chance of showers or a thunderstorm tonight, then becoming clear the lows around 71 degrees, sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Right now, 91 degrees in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business designed to elevate people, teams, and companies, D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang. Ukraine's army is waging its first major offensive against the Russians. It's pushing to retake a strategic city in the south called Kherson. The fighting is brutal, and Ukrainian soldiers are paying a terrible price to liberate a vast region of occupied territory near the Black Sea. NPR's Brian Mann traveled close to the front lines to talk with those soldiers. And just a word of caution, his story contains moments of violence that may be disturbing for some listeners.
19: Mid-morning, we drive past bunkers and sandbag walls on the outskirts of Apostolov, a half-empty industrial town northeast of Herson. We're out on what's really the military frontier now. There are villages still around. You see civilians, but they're also... Checkpoints everywhere in fortified positions. Our goal here is to see and hear what it's like day to day for thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, many of them civilians just a few months ago, who live and fight on this Southern front. The first stop is a place hidden on the edge of an abandoned factory where Ukrainian soldiers are brought when they're injured. A burly guy with a black beard who calls himself Doc waits in the back of a big army ambulance.
24: Not us
18: bus,
19: he grins and says there are no patients here now, but he thumps the medical equipment strapped to his body armor and says he's ready. He says when wounded soldiers arrive, they're often in a very bad state, often hit by Russian artillery. He has to work fast to stabilize the men before transporting them onto a military hospital. As the offensive continues toward Kherson, Doc says things will only get worse with more casualties. The day after our trip, the Ukrainian military told NPR 26 wounded soldiers were brought here for care. The soldiers tell us that is the sound of Russian tanks firing in the distance. For weeks, elements of Ukraine's army have been pushing forward along a vast arc of territory toward Kherson. U.S. and British intelligence reports say it's working. Russia is back on its heels here under enormous pressure. But progress has been grudging and costly, and both sides have scored hits. That's a Ukrainian army major named Alexander Litvinov. He's a guy with a kind face in his 50s who worked as a chauffeur before the war. He's taken us forward a few kilometers closer to the active fighting, to an observation post and bunker next to a small orchard where he was stationed. Litvinov says he's volunteered to show us this place, because it's important people know what he and his fellow soldiers are facing. (laughs) Litvinov says he was here when Russians hit them repeatedly with bunker buster artillery shells and then a missile. It was deafening, he says. He shows us a crater a dozen yards across, then shrugs and says they were lucky. The Russian aim was just a little off.
7: Next location.
19: We climb next into a pair of battered SUVs driven by Ukrainian soldiers. Ukraine's army has stipulated NPR can only go forward from this point to talk to soldiers if we ride in their convoy. So Major Litvinov drives. He points to farm fields where the bronze-yellow wheat will go unharvested. He says it's too dangerous. All the farmers have fled. We're moving quickly now because we are in the open here, and a lot of the Russian artillery does have the capacity and the range to hit here. So. Uh, What what he did say is that they have not seen spotter drones today. The landscape looks eerily empty, scarred by craters and shell-damaged buildings. Litvinov tells us it's easy to get lost out here on winding farm roads among scattered villages and industrial sites. The exact point of contact between Russian and Ukrainian troops is often unclear day by day. So as we're climbing out of the vehicles here, I can hear the tank fire again in the distance.
16: Hello, Brian. Two
19: Ukrainian soldiers appear from the other car and identify themselves as Viktor and Sergei. They carry assault rifles with extra magazines strapped to their armor. One wears a camouflage bandana over his shaved head. They lead us into a strip of thick forest to the trench they occupied for months. They say they were down in this hole, getting hammered by Russian tanks and mortars, sometimes for a month at a time, often with no way to fight back. They tell me it was frightening to be under fire, but they say the experience differs soldier to soldier. Sometimes they say the fear just disappears. Other soldiers are always scared. It never goes away. I climb down through the narrow hole, the trench doesn't feel safe. It smells of raw dirt. The cut logs used to build a sheltering roof are low, claustrophobic. This trench isn't being used right now, but there are still bottles of water, ammunition caches, and other supplies. Victor and Serhi tell me the front line has moved forward from here. They offer to take us closer to active fighting, but we decline for safety reasons. I ask if they'll use this trench again if the Russians push back. Maybe they say, but they're convinced that won't happen. They think they have the Russians on the run as Ukraine's army pushes toward Kherson. But then something happens that shows how uncertain, how dangerous things are here.
17: now yes.
19: Victor and Sergey say they've detected a Russian reconnaissance drone operating overhead. I don't see it or hear it, but they say it's hovering above the tree canopy. If it spotted us, we could be threatened by artillery or snipers. After a few minutes' wait, we leave the forest quickly, scrambling back to the vehicles. You're in front. The soldiers are clearly concerned. Major Litvinov, our guide and driver, grips the steering wheel, going much faster over the rutted tractor road, trying to get us out of there. Then, suddenly, he loses control. My audio recorder catches the moment, the sound of the car hitting a tree. My leg is broken, my security advisor is also injured, and our driver, Major Alexander Litvinov, is killed in the crash. We're evacuated swiftly by Ukrainian medics and soldiers, including Doc, the field medic we met earlier in the day. They care for us and take us to a military hospital a safe distance from the line. Later the Ukrainian military will tell us they believe their two vehicles were actually under fire by the Russians. We didn't hear or see that. What we did see is how dangerous that world is, how quickly a stretch of forest or a farm field or a village street can turn deadly. We also see the terrible price Ukrainian soldiers, volunteers like Alexander Litvinov, are paying Day after day, as they struggled to push the Russian army back from their country. Brian Mann, NPR News, near Kherson.
9: This is NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 90 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered in the Middle East, the reaction to the death of a key al-Qaeda leader was welcomed by Saudi Arabia, but some in the region expressed concerns over U.S. drone strikes. That's ahead here on WBUR.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at FranklinParkZoo.org. And Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig.
27: Immigration
13: has yet again become an issue in the election. Political ads in Republican primary
5: races talk of an invasion by undocumented immigrants. This type of rhetoric, it's meant to agitate people for political reasons because it makes people feel anger and hate. How ideas once at the fringes of the immigration debate
13: became mainstream. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
10: Starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
21: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Nearly one year after pulling U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, the Biden administration says the drone strike that killed the top leader of Al-Qaeda shows the U.S. won't allow the country to become a safe haven again for uh, for terrorists. Here's White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby.
30: This action demonstrates that without American forces on the ground in Afghanistan and in harm's way, we still remain able to identify and locate even the world's most wanted terrorist and then take the action to remove him
17: from the battlefield.
21: Concerns about al-Qaeda trying to regroup in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan are hardly new before the weekend strike. U.S. military officials said Al-Qaeda was trying to reconstitute in Afghanistan, where it faces limited threats from outside. Military leaders have warned that the terrorist group is still looking to attack the U.S. Pennsylvania Supreme Court has upheld the state's mail-in voting law, as NPR's Hansi Luang tells us. That new ruling means that all voters in the key swing state can cast ballots by mail in November and for future elections.
18: Back in 2019, Pennsylvania state lawmakers expanded mail-in voting to all voters in the swing state. But a group of Republicans in the Pennsylvania State House made an about-face last year when they argued in a lawsuit that the law they helped pass violates the state's constitution. Majority of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, however, disagreed and found that there is no restriction in Pennsylvania's constitution that could stop lawmakers from making mail-in voting universal in the state. This lawsuit has been a focus of a Republican-driven campaign against mail-in-voting after baseless attacks on voting by mail from former President Donald Trump and his allies. Anzila Wong, NPR News.
21: Stocks finished lower on Wall Street as comments from the Fed suggested more interest rate hikes are coming to knock down rising inflation. The Dow lost 402 points, down almost one and a quarter percent. You're listening to NPR News. Just outside Johannesburg, South Africa, Four protesters were killed in demonstrations over high electricity prices as Kate Bartlett reports two of them were allegedly killed by police.
22: Residents of Okuruleni were protesting what they said were exorbitant electricity prices when demonstrations turned violent. Shops and businesses were looted and buildings sent alight. Demonstrators allege police shot and killed two protesters during the violence. Police spokeswoman Kelly Bongile Tepa says police responded to the protests with proportional force and are investigating the deaths. The protests come about a week after former president Thabo Mbeki warned that South Africa could be headed towards its own Arab Spring due to poverty and high rates of unemployment. Last year, more than 350 people were killed during the worst riots since the start of the country's democracy. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg.
21: Slightly cooler weather is helping firefighters get a handle on the largest wildfire burning here in California that's claimed at least four lives. Crews battling the McKinney Fire near the California-Oregon state line are taking advantage of higher humidity today, digging containment lines with hopes of keeping that fire away from the town of Wairica. There's a chance of thunderstorms in the area, which could also spark more fires. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. The Dow was down almost one and a quarter percent. This is NPR. This is
1: 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The thermometer is expected to rise again later this week. The National Weather Service has posted a heat advisory for Thursday and Friday. Afternoon temperatures combined with humidity both days are expected to make it feel like it's between 100 and 104 degrees. Normal service is resuming on the Fitchburg commuter rail line after some lengthy delays this afternoon. Commuter rail operator Keolis says a rail broke and forced delays of anywhere between 10 minutes and an hour and 40 minutes in one case. The cause of the break is under investigation. Keolis says delays were made worse by the fact that an adjacent track was out of service for upgrades at the time. The start of the upcoming school year is being delayed in Gardner. Officials say it's due to supply chain issues impacting construction of a new school in the city. As a result, the school superintendent announced classes at the middle school, high school and Gardner Academy will start a week late. Elementary classes will be delayed by two weeks. Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healy is urging the U.S. Supreme Court to uphold a policy that allows colleges and universities to consider race and ethnicity when making admissions decisions. She and 19 other state attorneys general say the practice promotes diversity in higher education. The high court is currently considering challenges to the practice, including one case involving Harvard. Sports Red Sox take on the Astros again tonight down in Houston. Game time is at 8.10. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight, then becoming clear, the lows will be around 71 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot, sunshine, the high's around 99 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers on Friday, the high's around 92. Right now it's 91 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a
27: probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang in
10: Culver City, California. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Al-Qaeda leader the U.S. killed in a drone strike this week, was believed to be living and operating in Pakistan and Afghanistan for the last 20 years. But he cast a long shadow over the Middle East. That's even as his international jihadist movement was eclipsed by groups like ISIS that were capturing territory on the ground. We're going to take a look at some of the reaction today and the outlook for al-Qaeda. And to do that, we're going to bring in NPR's Fatma Tanis, who joins us from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Hi, Fatma. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so I know that you've been tracking how people in the Middle East have been reacting to this news. Can you just give us a brief snapshot of what you've been seeing so far?
28: Sure. So the Saudis were the ones to really lead the official response. They issued a quick statement after President Biden's speech, praising and welcoming the operation that killed Zawahiri. Um, And they said, quote, thousands of innocent people of different nationalities and religions, including Saudi citizens, were killed by the terrorist group under his leadership. Of course, the shadow of 9-11 continues to hang over Saudi Arabia because of al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden's Saudi roots, um, and also 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi nationals. Mm-hmm. Zawahiri, as we know, was involved in the planning of 9-11. However, he is from Egypt, and so far, that country has been completely silent on this news.
10: What about the response to specifically how Zawahri was killed? I mean, we're talking about a U.S. drone strike in the heart of Kabul, right?
28: Yeah, so this is interesting because, you know, mainstream political commentators and social media influencers with hundreds of thousands of followers took on a more critical view. And you can see this across the region from Saudi Arabia to Egypt, Iraq, Kuwait. People are condemning the US usage of drones that they say is a violation of other countries' sovereignty. They say it often leads to the death of civilians, though not in this case, it seems. And they raised questions about the timing of the operation. One Saudi columnist who writes for local newspapers, Abdullah Bandar, said Biden, quote, offered Zawahiri to the American people in order to distract from his other failures. Others pointed out that Zawahri's presence in Afghanistan was the fault of the US withdrawal last year. Uh, so there was a general sense of resentment about American activity overseas being driven by internal politics.
2: Hmm.
10: Well, let me ask you, Fatma, we know that al-Qaeda had been active in Afghanistan, but how active have al-Qaeda and Zawahri in countries further away been, like in Iraq or Syria or Saudi Arabia?
28: Not much. You know, in recent years, they were really overshadowed by other groups like ISIS and al Nusra Front, uh, a group that split from al-Qaeda. Those groups actually captured ground and governed areas in former al-Qaeda strongholds like Iraq and Syria whereas Al-Qaeda was more focused on international operations. And until recently, Zawahri called for attacks in places like Saudi Arabia. Um, he was in contact with different Al-Qaeda offshoots in Iraq and Yemen, but it didn't really seem like he controlled them. So in general, the group struggled with radicalizing and attracting younger groups, and Zawahiri in particular was really not taken seriously by the other terrorist organizations, even when
10: he threatened them. Interesting. So. Where do we think al-Qaeda could be headed at this point without Zawahri at the helm?
28: There's a lot of speculation about who will succeed Zawahiri. There doesn't seem to be a clear line of succession, unlike when ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died in 2019. But terrorism experts and officials seem to agree on one thing. We are unlikely to see a revival of al-Qaeda, even under
10: a new leader. That is NPR's Fatma Tanis in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Fatma. Thank you.
9: An ancient Arctic giant was recently discovered in the tropics off the coast of Belize. And one of the researchers who pulled it up from the depths joins us now. devonchi kasana a PhD candidate at Florida International University's Predator Ecology and Conservation Lab, is speaking with us from Belize. Welcome to All Things Considered.
31: I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today.
9: So you were out on the water tagging tiger sharks and you found something that was... Definitely not a tiger shark. Tell us about what it was.
31: So, as we peered down and we looked out into the water, we just saw like a large-ish shadow. Mm. And that just kept getting bigger and bigger. And it was a weird looking creature. And so, right off the bat, we weren't quite sure what it was. But after much debate, we found out that it was actually an individual that belongs to a family of sharks that we refer to as sleeper sharks. And uh, the more commonly known species in that family is the Greenland shark. And it was very, very surprising because the literature that exists is more common for the higher latitude regions for these individuals because they are found in cold surface waters. And so they're just easily accessible.
9: Now, you've said that it looked really, really old. This is a species that can live for centuries. What does an old shark look like they don't have gray hair like are they wrinkled i mean what does it look like when a shark is really old
31: ah it's hard to explain honestly but i looked at it and i thought yes this could have existed in like prehistoric times or in Mm. the time where dinosaurs roamed the earth and so it was very sluggish it was very slow moving on the surface which is a very common behavioral trait for that species
9: these kinds of sharks can live to be 500 years old. It's incredible to think that this might have been alive when Magellan set sail to circumnavigate the globe. How did you feel looking at this ancient, enormous creature?
31: It's absolutely wild, right? When you think about it like that in terms of the time, Um, it was part confusion and part surprise, but no, of course it is exciting in hindsight to have been a part of something that, you know, is the stepping stone to perhaps more research and protection for the species in this region.
9: Scientifically, what is the significance of finding this sort of shark that is more typically found in shallow waters in the Arctic, deep in the tropics off the coast of Belize?
31: So like you rightly said, there are reports of these species being found more commonly in the higher latitudes, uh, where the surface waters are very cold. However, researchers had a hypothesis. And they said, because of the temperature preference of the species, how they can tolerate really cold water, essentially, they could be found throughout the globe, but just in the higher latitudes or in the the polar regions, they'll be up higher in the water column. And then as you went closer to the equator, they still could potentially exist, but they were just much deeper down in the water column. And so this discovery is actually the first record of you know, something to support that hypothesis from the Western Caribbean.
9: You know, you you were getting your PhD researching tiger sharks and here you have made this almost accidental discovery of a completely unrelated species in an area where it's not usually found. Is this gonna change your career path?
31: I'm very grateful for having had this experience, but as a researcher, I always like for my science to speak for my work and myself. And so I hope this is good sort of exposure, but at the same time, I will continue doing the work that I do. You're
9: gonna stick with the predators.
31: If you're asking if I'm gonna change my study species, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Because What are the chances of me finding another one of these animals again? I don't know. (laughs) I may as well buy a lottery ticket, right?
9: Right. (laughs) Devanchi Kassana is a Ph.D. candidate at Florida International University talking with us about the incredibly rare discovery of a Greenland shark in the tropics. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us.
31: Thank you so much for having me.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Five states hold statewide primaries today, and one of the key races is in Missouri, where there's an open U.S. Senate seat. Now, most of the attention has been on the Republican side because one of the GOP candidates is causing some people in the party to worry that if he does win tonight, it could put the seat currently held by Republicans in jeopardy. Jason Rosenbaum covers politics for St. Louis Public Radio and joins us now. Welcome.
29: Thank you so much for having me.
10: Well, thank you for being with us. Okay, so let's start on the Republican side in that race. Real quick, who are the main candidates there?
29: The major candidates thus far are Attorney General Eric Schmidt, former Governor Eric Greitens, and current Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. And Schmidt is someone who touts his legal efforts battling the Biden administration and has emerged as the candidate who many feel is poised to win. And that would be a relief to the Missouri Republican Party, who as you mentioned, have been very worried that Eric Greitens could win.
10: Right. And remind us why some Republicans are very worried about Greitens winning.
29: Greitens resigned in 2018 in a torrent of scandal following sexual misconduct and campaign finance allegations. And there's new allegations in this campaign as his ex-wife alleged abuse of her and their son. And, And many Republicans throughout the state just feel he's too toxic to win and could cost the Republican Party a safe seat. Here's Eric Schmidt hammering that point home yesterday in Washington, Missouri.
9: He will lose this
7: seat. He's abused his wife and his kid, and he's quit on the people of the state. And it doesn't get any easier in Washington, D.C. If he quit on you before, he'll quit on you again.
29: Now, I want to make it clear that Greitens has denied the abuse allegations, but his lead in the polls has withered away thanks to an avalanche of third-party ads highlighting his ex-wife's accusations. And ironically, Greitens' gubernatorial win in 2016 is credited to third-party ads that attacked his opponents.
10: And then there was like this strange sort of non-endorsement from former President Trump yesterday, right? Like what happened there?
29: If this race needed to get any wilder, this is this is this takes the cake Uh Uh, one of the biggest parlor games in missouri is who trump would endorse in this race and that's because trump is wildly popular in the state and candidates spent a lot of time and effort trying to win the former president's support yesterday though trump endorsed eric yes just the first name as both Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt share that name. And uh, Trump said he was leaving it up to voters to decide, but he was basically punting on that decision. But uh, both candidates publicized this endorsement, including Greitens at a campaign stop yesterday in St. Louis County.
14: President Trump's message on this
29: has been extraordinarily clear. As everybody knows, I'm the MAGA champion
14: in this race. Eric Schmidt's a rhino. President Trump said he wanted a warrior, I'm a Navy SEAL running against a career politician.
29: And and just for the listeners here, Rhino, of course, is shorthand for Republicans in name only, a term used to describe (laughs) members of the GOP who are insufficiently conservative. Greitens has made his disdain of the GOP establishment a major aspect of his campaign, which includes a widely condemned web ad where he stormed into a house with a gun with people dressed as soldiers hunting rhinos. Um,
10: Okay, and real quick, what about uh, the Democratic side in this race?
29: The two major candidates are Trudy Bush-Valentine and Anheuser-Busch here, and Lucas Kuntz, a Marine veteran and attorney. Uh, Most people agree, though, that if Schmidt or Hartzler win the nomination tonight, they're going to face an uphill battle in the fall because Democrats in Missouri have not pieced together a coalition to win statewide elections in quite some time.
10: That is Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you, Jason.
29: Thank you.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 91 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, Liz Cheney won her House seat big back in 2020, but splitting with Trump over election legitimacy and chairing the January 6th hearings has her trailing a pro-Trump challenger by 20 points in a recent poll. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Read all about it all month long. We're sharing ideas and favorite picks for summer reading, including some with a New England twist. Get in on the fun at WBUR.org slash Beach sports, the Red Sox will be taking on the Astros again tonight down in Houston. Game time is at 8.10. The forecast, mostly cloudy. Chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight and become clear. If you think of
7: Bin Laden as kind of the front man, who's the glitzy, glamorous guy who brought prestige and money to al-Qaeda, Zwahri was really the man who was the ideologue, who was the chief operating officer, if you will. And of this pair, he was really the more hardline of the two.
10: I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
9: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang. Representative Liz Cheney got a lot of national attention as vice chair of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But that is not helping her back home, where former President Trump remains popular and where she's trying to get reelected as Wyoming's single member of the U.S. House. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that Cheney faces a strong pro-Trump challenger in the state's Republican primary.
7: Representative Liz Cheney has her supporters, but lately many of them have come from the wrong party. This is Dana Woods in the tourist town of Jackson.
16: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm definitely supporting Liz Cheney. Um, I am a Democrat and am liberal, um, but I feel like she is just someone who, you know, has strong ethics and has stood up against some terrible things that have happened over the past five years.
7: Wyoming Republicans Mark Hansen and Danny Remich see things differently.
4: We got a lot of rhinos in there that we need to get out of. Liz Cheney's one. As far as I'm concerned, Liz Cheney's a traitor.
7: Cheney says she knows what's in front of her.
17: I think that uh, there's no question that I'm the underdog
7: in this race, certainly. Donald Trump won Wyoming with 70% of the vote in 2020, and roughly 69% of the state supported Cheney. But when Cheney started to attack Trump, The state party censured her. Trump then backed Cheyenne attorney Harriet Hageman, and she became the front runner, despite Cheney raising three times as much money. It's the most expensive house race in state history. University of Wyoming political scientist Jim King says Hageman and Cheney are politically very similar, except on Trump, who Cheney voted to impeach.
4: There is that one vote, and for now her participation in the House Select Committee Uh, That has obviously rankled uh, some uh, Republicans in Wyoming.
7: Cheney had hoped to talk to more rank and file to explain to them why her time on the committee is important for democracy. She does tell people she's still conservative, has not changed her views on policy, and will fight for the Constitution.
14: I've also been clear I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to tell
10: people what they want to hear.
7: But Cheney's time on the January 6th committee has allowed Hageman to try and take advantage. Trump spoke in an event for her, and she's traveled the state telling people they need a Wyoming representative.
15: Liz Cheney has not been representing Wyoming for a year and a half. The moment she made the decision to go to war with Donald Trump, that's really the only thing that she has been focusing on.
7: Hagman says she grew up in Wyoming, something Cheney did not, and has spent her entire career as an attorney fighting against the federal government. The state Republican Party has made it clear that Hageman is their choice, and she's also been endorsed by many House Republicans. Many of Cheney's donations have come from out of state. Her in-state support from many longtime Republican politicians really doesn't have the impact it once did. Cheney says Republican politics has certainly changed.
14: When you look at Wyoming in particular, you know the chairman of our state party is a member of the keepers. He was on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. There are photos of him walkie-talkie in his hand that day. And then he went home uh, and said that he thought we ought to contemplate seceding from the union.
7: Cheney says she would like the party to return to its values, and she plans to work on that, whether or not she gets reelected. Recent polls have her trailing by 20 points and also show that few voters are undecided. But Wyoming does have a significant number of right-leaning independents that Cheney is clearly targeting. The primary is August 16th. For NPR News, I'm Bob Beck in Laramie.
9: Research on Alzheimer's disease is at a crossroads. Experimental drugs have been a disappointment so far, so researchers are trying to figure out what comes next. NPR's John Hamilton has been attending the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in San Diego this week, and he joins us now. Hey, John. Hey. Why are these drugs that researchers were once optimistic about failing?
30: Well, these drugs are going after something called amyloid. It's the thing that forms these sticky plaques that tend to build up in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's. And some of the drugs have proved really good at removing these plaques, but they don't seem to prevent memory loss. So even the one anti-amyloid drug that's approved by the FDA, that's a drug called aduhelm, it still hasn't proved that it helps patients. And this morning, I heard details about yet another disappointing result. Uh, This was a study of people in Colombia who carry a gene that pretty much guarantees they will develop Alzheimer's at an early age. And they got an anti-amyloid drug called crinizumab for five years or more. That's a long time. But it didn't
9: work. The drug might have helped a little, but not enough to achieve statistical significance. There's also been some talk about research into these drugs that appears to be fraudulent. What's going on there?
30: Yeah, so there was an investigative report in the journal Science, uh, looking at studies involving this researcher from the University of Minnesota. Those studies suggested that one particular form of amyloid causes memory problems in rodents, but now it looks like data from those papers was altered. The report in Science says this calls into question the whole idea that amyloid is important in Alzheimer's, but the scientists I've talked to here, they all disagree. You might expect that researchers who do amyloid research would see it that way. So I talked to somebody who is not at the meeting. His name is Carl Harrop at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a longtime critic of what's known as the amyloid hypothesis, but he doesn't buy the idea that this one study led the field astray. Here's what he told me. That there was fraud, I think, is very clear. The paper in Science documents that very, very well, but the evidence in those papers was really tangential to the field. Yeah, so his point is that there are hundreds and hundreds of amyloid studies out there, and no single piece of research can have that much influence. Well, if amyloid drugs are not the answer, what is? Well, people are looking at several possibilities that they talked about here. One is drugs that go after these tangles that appear inside of neurons of people with Alzheimer's. There are several drugs being tested that try to get rid of these tangles. Another option is drugs that target inflammation in the brain, another sign of Alzheimer's. And today, I heard from researchers who presented a study of a drug that helps brain cells metabolize sugar. It acts a bit like a diabetes drug, And there are some signs that this drug can actually slow
9: down memory loss. Well, is there anything that people who might be concerned about developing Alzheimer's can do right now when there are not good drugs on the market to treat or prevent it?
30: Exercise. Uh, There are now a whole lot of studies suggesting that people who exercise are less likely to develop Alzheimer's. And today, I heard about a new study that treated exercise as if it were a medicine. It's, it's called the EXERT study. And it looked at about 400 people. These are sedentary people with mild cognitive impairment, uh, which is the earliest stage of Alzheimer's. And they were all prescribed YMCA memberships and a personal trainer for a year. So typically, people with mild cognitive impairment get worse every year. But in this study, they didn't. And what's really interesting is that the benefit was not only for people who did aerobic exercise, but it also worked for people who just went and did stretching and flexibility
9: exercises on a really regular basis. Hmm. NPR's John Hamilton reporting there from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in San Diego. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Ari.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 90 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, we look at the significance of the U.S. killing of a top Al-Qaeda leader in Afghanistan. That's just ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight, then becoming clear. The lows will be around 71 degrees, sunny, and
6: 85 degrees tomorrow. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
4: The United States successfully concluded
0: an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda.
1: President Biden announced the killing of a top al-Qaeda leader who helped carry out many high-profile terrorist attacks. It's Tuesday, August 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have more on the significance of al Zawahri's death. Also, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan stop on her Asia tour wasn't announced in advance, but Beijing recently said such a visit would have serious consequences for China-U.S. relations. And attorney Cleta Mitchell came under scrutiny after taking part in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now she's hosting election integrity summits that have included RNC officials. It's 601 now. This News.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan late today local time as China sent fighter jets toward the island in a display of anger. Beijing has vowed to forcefully respond, but as NPR's John Woolwich reports, Pelosi says America's solidarity with
3: Taiwan is more important than ever. Shortly after Pelosi's plane touched down on the self-ruled island, the Washington Post published an opinion piece under Pelosi's name. In it, she says America must stand by Taiwan, a leader in peace, security, and economic dynamism that's facing accelerating aggression from Beijing. By traveling to Taiwan, she says she and the other members of Congress with her, quote, honor our commitment to democracy, reaffirming that the freedoms of Taiwan and all democracies must be respected. As Pelosi's plane was approaching Taiwan, Chinese state TV said Su-35 jets were crossing the Taiwan Strait. It did not provide further detail, but flights that cross an informal but accepted midway line down the center of the strait are generally seen as provocative. John Riewich, NPR News, Beijing.
4: The House Oversight Committee is subpoenaing the head of Smith & Wesson, the company that made the weapons used in multiple high-profile mass shootings, including the one in Highland Park, Illinois, on July 4th that left seven people dead. NPR's Elena Moore is more.
13: The committee is demanding testimony from President and CEO Mark Smith after he failed to cooperate with investigators last month. In the subpoena letter, committee chairwoman Carolyn Maloney criticizes the company's marketing campaign. Saying they "quote" consistently contained dangerous themes and messages, Smith & Wesson did not immediately respond to NPR's request for comment. The subpoena is part of a larger inquiry by the House Oversight Committee looking into the five top gun manufacturing companies following a string of deadly mass shootings, including those in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York. Elena Moore. NPR News, Washington.
4: Voters in Kansas City today are determining the future of abortion rights in that state as they cast ballots on a constitutional amendment. As Dylan Lyson of the Kansas News Service reports, a proposed change could open the door for state lawmakers to ban abortion statewide. The proposed amendment was sent to voters after the Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 struck down abortion
18: restrictions and ruled the state constitution provides the right to an abortion. Supporters of the proposed amendment say it would put abortion policymaking back in the hands of lawmakers. But critics say it would allow the Republican-dominated Kansas legislature to significantly restrict abortion access or ban it outright. Kansas will be the first state to vote on abortion
4: rights since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade earlier this year. For NPR News, I'm Dylan Lyson in Lawrence, Kansas. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow down 402 points to 32,396. The NASDAQ was down 20 points. The S&P fell 27 points. This is... NPR. This
1: is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. There are residual delays after a broken rail disrupted travel on the Fitchburg commuter line earlier this afternoon. Trains were delayed by nearly two hours at one point. Commuter rail operator Keola says the rail broke in the Lincoln area and it has since been repaired. The cause is under investigation. Meanwhile, the derailment of construction equipment is to blame for disruptions to some red line service this morning. The MBTA says the incident at 1.30 a.m. near Quincy Center happened during track maintenance work. It caused some damage to the third rail, which had to be repaired. Shuttle buses were used just uh, until just before 6.30 to carry passengers between the JFK UMass and Braintree stops. It's the latest in a series of service disruptions and safety problems in the last year that have included collisions, derailments, and a fire on an Orange Line train last month. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission plans to meet on Thursday to discuss rules it might impose on sports wagering in the state. A bill to allow those wagers is awaiting the governor's signature. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more.
6: The proposal would let people bet on most college and professional sporting contests. Phil Sherwood is with the Massachusetts Council on Gambling and Health. His group is neutral on gambling, but he has concerns the bill would let people use apps to wager.
7: There's something to be said when you have to drive an hour to a casino to place a bet or go down the street to buy a lottery ticket. This notion that you can roll over in bed in the middle of the evening and place a bet on your cell phone really creates a concern that people will be betting more
6: frequently. Sherwood is happy several safeguards are in the measure, among them a prohibition on using credit cards to gamble and the ability for people to put themselves on a list to exclude them from placing wagers through online platforms. 490.9 WBUR I'm Faust Domenard. The moon is
1: one reason why Boston had fewer than predicted days of high tide flooding last year. That's according to a report today from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA had predicted 11 to 18 days of high tide flooding. WBR's Barbara Moran reports the city saw just seven.
5: Boston got off easy partly because of the natural cycle of the moon. The high tides just weren't as high. But don't expect that to continue. NOAA oceanographer William Sweet says as the moon continues on its course and sea levels rise with the changing climate, flood days will increase.
6: In most U.S. coastal locations, the number of high tide flooding days per year is growing. It's accelerating, in fact, along most east and gulf coastlines. And the rate of flooding is more than twice than it was about 20 years ago.
5: NOAA predicts up to 18 days of high tide flooding for Boston next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
1: The Red Sox have reportedly made another move on this baseball trade deadline day. Multiple reports indicate the team is obtained from the San Diego Padres' first baseman Eric Hosmer. Boston is reportedly sending pitcher prospect Jay Groom in exchange. Yesterday, the Red Sox traded away Christian Vasquez and Jake Diekman. Sox will be taking on the Astros tonight down in Houston. The forecast, mostly cloudy. Chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Then becoming clear, the lows will be around 71 degrees. Sunny and 85 degrees tomorrow. Thursday's going to be hot. Sunshine, the high around 99 degrees. Right now it's 90 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Almost 21 years after 9-11, the mastermind of those attacks is dead. A U.S. drone strike killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri on Sunday morning in Afghanistan. The intelligence community tracked his location to a safe house
11: right in the middle of Kabul. It's a house in the Sherpur neighborhood of Kabul, which is upscale, a lot of big houses, some of them used to be occupied by U.S.-backed warlords, big blast walls, guard towers. Now, of course, the population has flipped. It's different because the rulers are different. That's N.P.R.
10: Stevensky reporting from Afghanistan, a country now run by the Taliban after the U.S. withdrew its troops last year. And less than one year after that evacuation, the head of al-Qaeda turned up in Afghanistan's capital. So what does that mean for the future of the country? That is a question for Afghan-American. diplomat and former U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, Zalmay Khalilzad, who joins us now. Welcome.
12: Thank you. Good to be with you.
10: Good to have you. So do you believe the Taliban knew with total clarity that Zawahiri was in the heart of Kabul? What do you think?
12: Well, it's very likely that some Taliban knew, whether their leadership as a whole knew it. Uh, I'm not sure, but certainly... uh, it looks like the Akhani network, which is an important element of the Taliban, did know.
10: But you think it's plausible that some elements of the Taliban did not know of his presence there?
12: It is possible. Um, I will not rule it out. And maybe uh, there was a disagreement or anger, uh, even uh, that the, uh, some elements were violating the agreement and that was negotiated between the United States and the Taliban, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that uh, uh, this action uh, by the Aqanis uh, would have put at risk the gains that they had made, and the uh, lesson that they had learned uh, that uh, by supporting al-Qaeda the last time cost them a lot.
24: Right. So
12: I would not be surprised if some elements of the Taliban may have helped us, that tipped us off, in terms of the location.
10: Well, can we talk more about this agreement you speak of? This is the Doha agreement. You helped negotiate this U.S.-Taliban deal that allowed the U.S. to withdraw its troops. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today that the Taliban, quote, grossly violated that agreement by allowing Afghan territory to be used by terrorists. If we can just take a step back for a moment, what exactly did the Taliban promise in those discussions?
12: Well, uh, they signed an agreement, a text, uh, in two parts. Part one, specifically, uh, in, in general terms, says that the Taliban would not allow uh, the territory of Afghanistan uh, to be used by groups or individuals, especially al-Qaeda, and that was our uh, demand because mm-hmm. of 9-11, mm-hmm. to, uh, to threaten the security of the United States and our allies. And then the annex uh, has great details of how we would evaluate the Taliban performance or compliance. So uh, the Secretary of State is quite right uh, to say uh, that allowing the head of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in Kabul uh, was a gross violation of that agreement.
10: So in that case, in your mind, what is the viability of the Doha agreement at this point, this deal that you helped broker? Should the U.S. trust Taliban leadership after this?
12: Well, we never uh, trusted the Taliban leadership. Uh, we uh, uh, hold them accountable to the agreement that they made, but at the same time, uh, we uh, wanted to maintain and have maintained the capability uh, to respond uh, to the presence uh, of Al-Qaeda or other terrorists that will threaten the United States. Our commitment, by uh, bipartisan commitment, has been that we would not allow Afghanistan to become a safe haven for terrorists who would threaten the United States. And we demonstrated a few days ago that even though we don't have a large number of troops or any troops in Afghanistan, we have the capability and the will uh, to execute and deliver on the commitment that we have made.
27: Well,
10: now, let me ask you this. The Taliban is accusing the U.S. of violating the Doha agreement by initiating this drone strike in the first place. How would you respond to that?
12: Well, that's uh, obviously wrong. Uh, the agreement is clear. It's in black and white, uh, The uh, allowing someone to uh, plot and plan attacks, someone who plotted and planned the 9-11 attack. Was carried out other attacks on the United States to stay in Kabul and issue statement uh, threatening the security of the United States is a clear, beyond any doubt, violation of the Doha mm-hmm. Agreement.
10: Okay. In the last minute and a half, we minute and a half we have left. I want to ask you this. And that is what has the U.S. been doing the last 20 years? Because the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to take out al-Qaeda leadership after 9/11, stayed there for two decades. Less than a year after the U.S. withdraws troops, this happens. What does that say about what the U.S has managed to achieve the last two decades, you think?
12: Well, we achieved a great deal. Uh, we, uh, we can decimate it uh, al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is and Afghanistan was its very center it thousands of followers there. It's plotted and planned there safely and security. Now there are very few al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. We have killed the two major leaders, Osama bin Laden and uh, now the And uh, we have uh, the, developed our capability uh, technologically to do what we couldn't do uh, around 9-11, uh, which is to be able to effectively attack from afar, uh, That's still is some work in progress. We need to do better to even develop further that capability. Then we had to go on the ground and to manhunt. We may still have to do some of that, but as we demonstrated yesterday, uh, without a big presence that was very costly to the United States, mm-hmm. we can still do effective counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan.
10: Zalmay Khalilzad, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan and former Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, thank you very much for joining
12: us again. Thank you. Good to be with you.
9: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed earlier today in Taiwan. She is the most senior U.S. government official to visit the island in 25 years. Minutes after her plane touched down, China's military announced it would be holding live-fire military drills around the island later in the week. China opposes stronger U.S.-Taiwan ties because Beijing sees Taiwan as part of China. Could these tensions escalate into a military conflict? NPR's Emily Fang joins us to discuss it. Hi, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hey, Ari. Why are the stakes so high on this visit?
13: Well, the last speaker of the House to visit Taiwan, that was Newt Gingrich at the time, was in 1997. So Pelosi going to Taiwan now is an extremely bold move that signals stronger U.S.-Taiwan relations. And also, even though this is a visit to Taiwan, this visit's not actually really about the island at all. It's about relations between the U.S. and China. And China has been clear diplomatically and militarily that it opposes this visit.
9: And so how does Beijing view this action by the speaker?
13: Well, China worries this sets a precedent for more American, even global leaders to visit Taiwan when China spent the last 70 years isolating Taiwan diplomatically on the international stage. The U.S. has said this visit is a normal exchange. It does not change U.S.-China policy towards Taiwan, but China sees this differently. It sees Taiwan as part of China, and with this Pelosi visit, China's perceived the U.S. as dangerously close to treating Taiwan like an independent country, and under Chinese law, that could merit a military response.
9: But would China really want a military conflict over this?
13: No, and that's the strange thing. This is a sensitive time for China. It's dealing with a stumbling economy. It's got this big Communist Party meeting coming up in October. China's leader Xi Jinping wants to show that he's running everything smoothly in the country in the lead-up to that meeting, and having a potential war with Taiwan would mess that up. So Xi Jinping's actually been trying to stabilize U.S.-China relations. It's no coincidence that last week, as Pelosi's visit was drawing nearer possibly, President Biden and Xi Jinping held a phone call. Drew Thompson, uh, he's a former China director at the Defense Department. He argues that despite all the aggressive posturing from China's military, the PLA, high-level dialogue between Biden and Xi will matter the most in deciding what happens after Pelosi's visit.
14: These missions that the PLA Air Force conducts or the PLA Navy conducts are ongoing and all the time. So it's really about the high-level authoritative messaging particularly between President Biden and Xi Jinping, those are the two most authoritative voices. And and that's really the incredible importance of the phone call between uh, the two leaders uh, a few days ago.
13: But Beijing has to thread this diplomatic needle pretty carefully. It needs to appear ready to take military action if needed, but it's also trying to de-escalate, And so if it messes up that balancing act, we could accidentally tip the East Asian region into war. That's what people fear the most.
9: Very high stakes. What kinds of retaliatory measures has China taken so far?
13: It's had military drills this entire week, right across from the Eastern coast of Taiwan, There were new drills just announced today, minutes after Pelosi landed in Taiwan. Some of the places where those drills are happening are actually kind of within Taiwan's sovereign waters, which is a really big deal. And I would expect tensions to last a few days, if not weeks, in a carefully managed back and forth as the U.S., China, and Taiwan trying to gauge each other's reactions. Uh, China could still escalate, and now the ball is in China's court. I talked to Yujin Kuo. He is a professor of China studies at National Sun Yat-sen University in Taiwan. On about this.
12: China's, Xi uh, reaction is that strong, including, for example, like semi blockade of Kaohsiung harbor for weeks or plenty of military aircraft uh, and vessels appearing at the medium line of Taiwan Strait. It will force Taiwanese military to react. So the situation will escalate.
13: Again, no one wants to go to war, but no one can show their backing off.
9: And that's NPR's Emily Fang. Thanks a lot.
13: Thanks, Ari.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon and good evening. I'm Steve Brown. It's 90 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, an attorney who came under scrutiny for taking part in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election is now hosting election integrity summits that have included RNC officials. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, the summer season at Gunstock Mountain Resort in New Hampshire is back on. Many activities at the resort came to a grinding halt when the mountains entire management team walked off the job nearly two weeks ago. They were in a dispute with the former chairman of the commission that oversees the resort. Last night, Belknap County representatives removed that chairman and replaced him with a new member. They also voted to rehire the management team. The resolution comes before the start of a multi day music festival on Thursday. Wall Street, the stocks were down today. Dow finished the day down 1%, or 402 points, at 32,397. NASDAQ off 0.16%, or 20 points. At 12,349. The S&P 500 down a half a percent or 27 points to close at 4091. Marketplace comes up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR.
8: We are funded by you our listeners and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com/careers.
1: Coming to City Space Wednesday, August 10th, the primary debate with the candidates for Massachusetts Attorney General, free in-person and virtual tickets at bur.org events.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
1: And I'm Ari
9: Shapiro. Ahead of this year's midterms, a lawyer who worked on former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election is now trying to mobilize a volunteer army of poll watchers. Her summits have included top officials from the Republican Party alongside at least one activist who's promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory. As NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach reports, Hours of leaked audio are shedding light on their efforts.
16: Everybody in the back, take your seats.
17: Back in March of this year, in a hotel just outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, people gathered for what was billed as an election integrity summit. It was officially nonpartisan, but the audience seemed clearly pro-Trump.
3: Okay, I got some good news. Donald Trump did not lose Pennsylvania. He did not lose Pennsylvania.
17: That's Doug McClinko, a county commissioner from Pennsylvania, who wants to eliminate mail-in voting in the state. He said proudly that he voted against certifying the 2020 election. This event was put on by a longtime conservative election lawyer named Cleta Mitchell.
16: We are taking the lessons we learned in 2020, and we are going forward to make sure they never happen
12: again, ever.
17: If the name Cleta Mitchell sounds familiar, it's probably because of this phone call.
12: So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break.
17: This is from January 2nd, 2021. President Trump pressured Georgia election officials to overturn the state's election results. Trump brought Cleta Mitchell as backup.
16: What I don't understand is why it wouldn't be in everyone's best interest to try to get to the bottom, compare the numbers, to try to be able to get to the truth.
17: According to the congressional committee investigating January 6th, Mitchell had also suggested a plan to submit alternate slates of pro-Trump electors since then a prosecutor in Georgia has subpoenaed her as part of a criminal investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the election. While those investigations have been pushing ahead, Mitchell has a new position with a D.C. nonprofit, led in part by Mark Meadows, Trump's last White House chief of staff. It's called the Conservative Partnership Institute.
16: And now I get to work on election integrity every single day.
17: Trump's political action committee donated a million dollars to the conservative partnership institute and the group appears to keep close ties with Trump campaign staffers like Mike Roman
14: I I was on Trump's campaign I was on in 16 I was on in 20 hopefully I'll be on in 24 if he hires me (laughs) Like Mitchell, the House
17: Select Committee investigating January 6th has subpoenaed Roman. In his case, congressional investigators said he was part of a coordinated strategy to send fake slates of pro-Trump electors to the Electoral College, a strategy that was not discussed at the event. The summit also featured figures closer to the far right.
16: With that, I would like to recognize Tony Shoup, who is CEO of uh, Audit, Pennsylvania.
17: Tony Shoup of Audit the Vote Pennsylvania was introduced as the leader of the state's conservative election integrity coalition. She attended the pro-Trump Stop the Steal rally in Washington on January 6th and was outside the Capitol during the riot. At this event, she led the group in a pledge of allegiance and a Christian prayer.
5: That you will guide the leadership that is in this room to restore integrity, liberty, and freedom to this great country so that you can get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
17: Shoup has said that her path to activism started with a 10-part, three-hour online video that promoted conspiracy theories from 9-11 to QAnon and the bizarre theory called Pizzagate.
16: Pizza gate
2: is real.
17: In an email, Shoup said that she did not believe everything in the video, but that it was a compelling argument that opened her eyes. I asked her about this startling moment.
2: Worldwide, children are stolen and sold to elite pedophile rings. The murderers then drink the children's blood, and they eat their flesh.
17: Shoup told me she did not know if those specific claims were true, but called it a great question. She suggested that NPR should spend some time digging into it.
4: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Back
17: at the event, the the real focus was on the next election. Volunteers heard from Ned Jones, who works with Cleta Mitchell at the Conservative Partnership Institute, and he walked through part of a step-by-step guide to monitoring elections. Jones said one step involved filing Freedom of Information Act requests to local election offices.
4: It does two things. It gets you information that otherwise you wouldn't get, but it puts all of them on notice that you're watching.
17: Jones is active on social media. On January 6th, Jones saw a tweet about the breach of the Capitol building and responded, quote, it's our turn, about time. He's tweeted several times about a coming civil war. At this event, Jones's rhetoric was
18: more muted.
4: scrutiny and exposure are the tools that we have.
17: Keeping up the pressure on election officials was a theme throughout, though Mitchell herself stressed the importance of remaining polite, not losing your cool. A conservative activist named Christine Brim said it was important for volunteers to concentrate on heavily blue areas, like her home in Fairfax County, Virginia.
5: Our job is not to win. Our job is to lose less badly. And when you're the blue county that can ruin a statewide vote, that really focuses what you're doing.
17: Now, alongside these activists at the event and drawing on this volunteer energy, there were also two officials with the Republican National Committee, including the party's national director for, quote, election integrity. They praised Mitchell as the best election law expert out here and emphasized that these volunteer poll watchers and election workers would help provide intelligence to the party war room by identifying issues that the party could include in legal challenges. Here's Andrea Raffle, the RNC's Director of Election Integrity for Pennsylvania.
5: Um, If we can even get one Republican in every precinct, that means we have eyes in every precinct automatically. And you're there doing those official duties, making sure that everything is running smoothly in that precinct.
17: This event in Pennsylvania is one of several across the country, including Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, Mitchell has said they're building an army of patriots to monitor elections.
16: And with that, thank you and God bless you and God bless America.
17: It's not concerning or even really unusual for political groups to mobilize volunteers to help watch the polls or ask questions of election officials. That's democracy. But experts say it is concerning when people behind the mobilization believe conspiracy theories about the last election. Brendan Fisher is the deputy executive director of a group called Documented, which investigates the influence of corporations and wealthy people in politics. They obtained the tape of this event and shared it with NPR.
18: The concern is that the conspiracy theorists who see fraud around every corner are going to disrupt voting
19: and the administration of elections.
17: Some longtime Republicans, like David Hoppe, have also been raising the alarm about the spread of the big lie. Hoppy is a former chief of staff for House Speaker Paul Ryan and part of a group of conservatives behind a report called Lost Not Stolen, which debunks false election fraud claims.
20: If you start saying, gee, I was cheated just because you don't like to lose, that undermines the system. It really does go to the heart of a representative democracy.
17: The Conservative Partnership Institute did not respond to NPR's requests for comment. A spokesperson for the RNC said that the party works with other groups who have an interest in promoting election integrity, but they are not part of any formal coalition and are quote, independent of outside groups. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News.
8: This is NPR News.